All righty, I'm, I'm going to go ahead and pray to get us started here, so if you would join me in prayer, then we'll jump in. Lord, we're so thankful for the opportunity to be here this morning, so thankful for the chance to look at your word, to be challenged by it, uh, so thankful to be able to come and to worship and sing praises to your name, oh God. Uh, God, this is your place, this is um, your time, we give it to you, we recognize that our whole lives are yours, and we we set apart this time just to acknowledge that and proclaim that. Lord, we give you all that we are. We submit this week ahead to you. We submit all our cares that we've brought. We, we lay them down, Lord, and ask that you would um, stir our hearts this morning with your word and, and with this time of fellowship. God, may you encourage us and strengthen us this day. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, so, after this week, we're going to take a short break from the Gospel of Mark, actually, and for a few weeks, we'll be doing an Advent series, and in this Advent series, we're actually doing kind of a weird Advent series, because it's going to be like a mashup Advent marriage series together, so, which sounds like weird, but actually, it makes a lot of sense, because Jesus is the bridegroom that is coming, and so we'll be talking about Advent, the coming of the bridegroom. And we'll be kind of hitting on some topics of marriage as we go through that, looking at how the, the way Jesus lays his life down for the church is similar to the way that he has called us uh, men in our lives to lay our lives down for our wives and how that is a beautiful picture that is on display for the world to see. So excited to do that. Uh, Luke and I are going to be tag teaming on that series over the next four weeks, so uh, excited to jump into that after, after Thanksgiving. And then we'll jump back into Mark uh, starting in January. Um, it's actually a good stopping place for us in the book of Mark now because we're concluding Mark's record of the journey uh, and ministry that Jesus did in the area of Galilee. And so from this point on, starting in chapter 10, the disciples and Jesus will be heading to Jerusalem. And actually, if you look at the book of Mark, chapters 11 through 16 are all the final week of Jesus' life. So literally that, that last whole third of the book is literally just one week they'll be looking at seeing the triumphal entry and ending with, uh, with Easter and the resurrection. So um, that being said, I'm going to ask this question and see, see what we can get from the crowd here, okay? So what has been the message Jesus has been proclaiming in the first nine chapters of his ministry as recorded by the book of Mark in Galilee? I've got two. These guys answer all the time. These kids get it every single time. These kids answer this every time. So I need an adult hand because the kids know this. I already know the kids have been listening, so I don't have to worry about that. What I'm worried about is if the adults know this message. Any adults know? Josue. Okay, that's one out of the three. Yep. What's another one? Repent and believe. And there's one more. Hattie. The time has come. The time is here. Okay, next level question for you, because I ask that question all the time, and, and you should know that question. Uh, yeah, pretty, pretty much. Okay, what in the world do any of those three statements mean? Can anybody tell me, just tell me a little bit, what does, we'll start with, the time has been fulfilled. The time is here. What does it mean? What does that mean? Claire. Okay, it's time for Jesus to come. It's time for the Messiah to arrive, right? Okay, how do you have something to add? No, okay, okay. Anybody else have something to add? Time has been fulfilled. The kingdom has come, not entirely, but it's being 
at this moment. Right, right, right. So one of the things also, time is fulfilled, the whole Old Testament points to this time, right? Jesus is the greater Moses. He's the greater David. He's the greater Adam, okay? All of the Old Testament, maybe not explicitly in some places, but definitely implicitly, is pointing toward Jesus, our need of a Savior. The time has come, right? The Messiah is here, okay? The second one, the kingdom of God is near. Roy, the kingdom of God is near. That's right. All right. Anybody else? What does the kingdom of God is near mean? Adults? Yeah, Mark. God is in our presence. His kingdom is spatially present. You might remember me dissecting a Greek word, engizo. Yeah, engizo. Spatially present. He is near, right? He is here. So Jesus is telling the people as he's going throughout that the kingdom of God is present. It is here. Okay. Great. Last one. Repent and believe. What does that mean? Eli. <laughs> it means repent and believe. Okay, cool. <laughs> Any, anything else that strikes you about that? Repent of what? What does repent mean? Repent of your sins. Okay, cool. And believe in what? Mark, yeah. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Big word. Big word. <laughs> he, he, he is here. He is here to be the substitute for the sin that we are affront against God. Got it. Got it. So, so belief in Jesus as your Savior, right? Yeah. Very good. Very good. Awesome. So this is what, been, what Jesus has been saying for this whole ministry. Every time it says he's proclaiming something, this is what he's proclaiming. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So, um, you might have noticed that the disciples are trying to understand what in the world Jesus is doing. And this chapter, this section, is a great example of how the disciples are still missing the boat. And just before you cast judgment on these disciples, just look at your own life and your own heart real quick, as I've been trying to do as well, and just know that if you were in their shoes, you'd be in the same spot. Okay, you'd be just as clueless as them, and in fact, all of us, if we're honest, are kind of in that spot still today, clueless of what God is doing in our lives, not acknowledging his greatness and goodness of what he's done in the past, not trusting him for what he's coming in the future, struggling through that, okay? So before we cast judgment on the disciples, just check your heart throughout this time and understand that Jesus still wants to say something to you today from the passage. So our passage starts in verses 30 to 32. Um, when Jesus is passing through Galilee, and literally just like says hi to Galilee, keep going. He is now making a trip from Caesarea Philippi down through Galilee to Capernaum, where we believe Peter's house was, and then they'll go on from there to Judea. They're making a very fast trip. They're not stopping to do anything in Galilee. They're stopping to say bye and move on. Um, So in verse 30 it says, They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know. They're not looking to talk to anybody there. They're just on their way to Judea. For he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. But they did not understand the saying, and they were afraid to ask him. 
Okay, so Jesus tells them, he's foretelling for the second time, he is telling them that he is headed to a cross, that he's actually going to be handed over to uh, the power of men and be put on a cross and die and then rise again after three days. He's telling them, I'm about to go die for you and I'm about to rise three days later. And the first time this happened, he you know, kind of asked them, who do you think the, who do you think the, the Christ is and, or who do you think I am? And... and Peter answers correctly, he says, you're the Christ, right? But right after that, Peter gets rebuked for thinking that, uh, that, that Jesus wasn't going to go to the cross and say, no, 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 Jesus, you're not going to the cross. There's no way you'd be doing that. You're the Messiah. There's no way you're going to die, right? And Jesus rebukes him and says, get behind me, Satan, right? So you can understand why the disciples might be a little bit timid about questioning Jesus when he brings this up again. Because last time, Peter got, you know, rebuked heavily by by Jesus, and, and, and Peter got called Satan. So, um, so they didn't understand the saying, and they were afraid to ask him. So that's the starting point of this journey. Just remember, this is a walk they're on, a very long walk. Like, I can't remember how many hours. Like, the, the, num- the number of hours, I think the, the total walk is like 24 hours of walking. So like, you know, over the course of the week, they're walking together, right? And so Mark is drawing out these conversations from this walk down from Caesarea Philippi to Capernaum. So starts out, he wants to say, remember we were on that walk and Jesus said, told us that he was going to the cross, right? And then he wants to tell him one more thing. And the next thing he wants to tell him is this, that the disciples are here listening to what Jesus says about the kingdom and how he's going to die for them. And all they can think about and argue about is who is the greatest in the kingdom. Verse 33. And so they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And they sat down, and, and he sat down and called the twelve. And he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Mark is, you know, dissecting this, this walk that they've been going on, and he's saying, you guys remember we were walking down to Capernaum, and what Jesus told us first was that he was going to die for us and rise again. I mean, think about reflecting on this after Jesus has risen, right, and recording it for other believers and saying, this is how far gone we were as disciples, Remember when we were walking back to Judea? Jesus said he's going to the cross. And all we could argue about, fellow believers, was who is the greatest in the kingdom of God. And Jesus, to you know, correct their action, says, uh, calls a child from their midst. and says, come here. Has him sit on his lap. puts them in the midst of them, takes him in, their, him, him in his arms, and says, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. We know these children are the most vulnerable of the people, okay? They have no status. They have no authority. They have no power to fend for themselves and provide for themselves. They are the weakest of this society. And Jesus says, if you want to know who's the greatest then receive one of these children.
If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. So who are they to serve? All the way to the least, right? The children, right? Who are you to receive? Who are you to serve in your midst? The least of these, which is the child. So you can see Mark contrasting. This is how far we, off, we were off in understanding what Jesus was saying about the kingdom of God. He's saying the kingdom of God is here. It is in our presence, and this is what it looks like. It doesn't look like vying for the greatest position and saying who is best. It actually looks like receiving the least. Apparently this discussion, you know, went right over John's head. He wasn't ready to reflect on this very long because John brings up another question that's stirring in his heart that really shows where his heart is at. In verses 38 to 41, it says this, John said to him, teacher, um, let's change the subject, right? Like, (laughs) don't love that message. John said to him, teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said to him, do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able to soon afterwards speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Here we see John looking around in their areas, kind of kind of taking stock of what's going on, and apparently someone that's not following along with these disciples, with the 12 and all the others that are following with them, was casting out demons. And they're casting out demons in the name of Jesus. And so John says, hey, we tried to stop this guy because he's not following us. He's not hanging out with us. He's not in our crowd. He's not following our movements. He's out on his own doing his own thing, but he's using the name of Jesus to cast out demons. And Jesus says, do not stop him. For no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able to soon afterwards speak evil of me. This person who's casting out demons in the name of Jesus is literally saying the power of Jesus can save this person from the demonic, right? So they believe enough at this point to say, Jesus is strong enough to defeat the demons. And Jesus is saying to the disciples, listen, if someone else is using my name, and they're seeing the power of it at work, guess what? It's not going to be long before they trust me with everything. And so don't worry about how God is moving his kingdom in other ways around you if someone's not in your group or your, uh, your, your whatever, right? Following in your way. It's bigger than you, right? The kingdom of God is thankfully bigger than this room, right? It's bigger than this county. It's bigger than this nation, Jesus goes on to say, I say to you, whoever gives a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will no, by no means lose his reward. The Lord works on those who bless his body. And the Lord works through anyone that would use the name of Jesus and stand in the name of Jesus as a savior to do the work of his kingdom. What we see in the disciples is this broken desire for status and authority in the kingdom of God, 
right? They're hearing Jesus say the kingdom of God is here. It is present. They're seeing Jesus do these amazing things, right? And they want to be at the top of this movement. They literally are arguing about who is the greatest among them. They want to be at the top, right? They want to be at the top of the rankings. Their desire for status and authority is blinding them from actually seeing what Jesus is doing in the kingdom of God. How cool is it that Jesus says, oh yeah, he's doing it in my name? Well, great. That's exactly what I want. I want anybody who would follow after me to go out and do the work of the kingdom. He didn't say to rebuke him. He says, let him go. He's going to come. He's going to know me just as much as you know me. Think about the context of this. I mean, the disciples so far right now, they, don't even, they haven't even seen Jesus die and raised from the dead. The Holy Spirit hadn't come down and landed on them yet. They're like baby, they have a baby understanding of what it is to follow Jesus, right? They just see this powerful guy walking among them who's called them to follow him and think that this is like giving them some status and authority. They do not understand the thing yet. And Jesus is saying, listen, you have no idea how big this kingdom is. It is way bigger than this little group of maybe 100 or 200 people that are kind of following along with us here, right? Their desire for status and authority has blinded them to see what God is doing in the, in the greater kingdom. The heart of their disciples is just not in the right place. And so Jesus pivots this conversation to discuss what exactly is at stake if their hearts don't get right. Okay, this could be true of any kind of sin pattern that you're dealing with, but, um, but the sin pattern that the disciples are dealing with right now is that they want status and they want authority in the kingdom of God. And Jesus is saying, if you're going to have status and authority in the kingdom of God, you need to serve the least of these. The one who's going to be the first is going to be the least and a servant of all. And the, on top of that, John actually wants to like keep this thing in, under his control. He says, well, this kingdom of God, like, we rebuked him from casting out demons in your name because this is our thing, right? This is about us. Did you see that when, he, when we read that passage? He says, uh, teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. <laughs> As if John had anything to do with what they were doing, Right? Now, if he would have said, he's not following you, then that might be correct. But he's saying, well, this is about what we're doing, right? Yeah, we're doing great things here. And Jesus says, it's uh, not about you. It's actually about what's done in my name that is power. So Jesus pivots this conversation to say and to teach our hearts today, what is at stake when we're faced with these temptations of sin, whether they be pride uh, or a desire for authority or selfishness or lust or whatever it may be. There's a few things that he calls out in verses 42 to 50 that are in our hearts that he wants to challenge. Three things. The heart of those who are watching you, your own soul, and your calling in the kingdom. The heart of those who are watching you, your own soul, and your calling in the kingdom. Jesus is very concerned about the disciples' hearts, okay? He, these, people are, these disciples are following him. 
throughout his ministry, they have heard him say, the time has been fulfilled, the kingdom of God is near, repent and believe. And their hearts are still not understanding what Jesus is doing. And so he says to them in very emphatic terms, you have got to get your hearts right. Because your hearts are in the wrong place and there is a lot at stake here. First, what's at stake in the hearts of those who are watching you? Verse 42. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, and little ones here could be referring to the child that was placed in the middle, children are the least of these, but in general the word is expanded to little ones, uh, generalized to say any young believer, okay? If you are a follower of Jesus and there are young believers in your midst, right? People that are, you know, have been uh, in the journey for a shorter time than you, right? They're looking at you, okay? So he says there's something at stake in your discipleship process. Okay? As you follow Jesus, other people are watching you follow Jesus. And so something big is at stake. So whoever calls one of these little ones who believe in me to sin... It would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Whew. That's a pretty big contrast, right? Like, harsh. harsh. Yeah, exactly. A millstone is like uh, the size of a car or two, um, and it's just rocks. So it's just one big rock that's the size of, like, two VW Bugs or something like that, right? It's huge, okay? The thing is very, very heavy you would go to the bottom very fast, okay? It would, there would be no question, okay? He is emphatically saying, if you are causing these young ones to stumble in sin, this is how drastic that is. So, like, he's teaching the disciples how to be leaders in the kingdom. If the leaders of this kingdom think that the kingdom is about them, right, and that the kingdom is about their status and who is greatest in it, then they've totally missed it. It would have been better for a millstone to be around their neck and thrown into the sea. Because with that mentality, the work of the kingdom is shrunken into a very small thing. It's shrunken into a hierarchy of man that is controlled by human hands. And it cannot grow the way Jesus wants it to grow. Jesus wants it to grow so much that people who aren't even following him are doing works in his name before he's gone to the cross. Like, that should be a mind blower, right? People are casting out demons who aren't in the clique of the middle of the following of the kingdom, and they're casting out demons in the name of Jesus because they've seen it at work and they believe it. The kingdom is bigger than us. And hearts are watching us, so that's at stake. The second thing is at stake for the disciples, and we know this is very much at stake for the disciples because we see this play out, right? Judas, in the end, does not believe. He says, your very own soul is at stake. Mark 9, 43 to 48. Hold on to your seats here. Um, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands and go to hell to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eyes cause you to sin, then tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes and be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. This is a good time in our service to point out that we just follow the Bible one verse at a time and, and deal with what it gives us. 
It's not exactly the passage that I choose to like talk about today, you know, unquenchable fires and never dying worms. So fun. Um, but Jesus talks about it and we have to deal with it. What he's telling the disciples is that if you let this unrepentant sin stay in your heart, you're never going to actually trust me for who I am. And the end of not trusting me for your salvation is trusting yourself for salvation. And that means you're separated from God for eternity. That's not a good thing. So he paints this very stark picture. If, you, if your eyes cause you to sin, drag them out. If your hands cause you to sin, cut them off. If your feet cause you to sin, cut them off. Why? He's saying your eyes are what you see. Your hands are what you do. Your feet are or where you go, okay? These pieces of your body are indispensable for you. They help you see, do, and walk, right? So he says, listen, this is how drastic it is. If one of those members that is totally indispensable to your functioning as a human, right, and doing what you're called to do, it would be better for you to remove them than have them in your life if they're causing you to sin. Just cast them out. I don't care how important they are to do your job. You shouldn't even have them if they're keeping you from me. If these indispensable parts of your body continue to cause you to remain in unrepentant sin, you'd be better off without them than to remain in that sin and separated from the Lord. He's saying to the disciples here, he said, listen, you guys think it's about who's the greatest. You guys think it's about this little group that we've created. It's about so much more than that. And what's at the root of their sin for the disciples is pride. They're proud that they're the ones that are close to following Jesus. They're proud of the things that they have done, and they think that the authority is in their name, and they're stacking themselves up right under Christ to be at the right hand. And Jesus is saying, it's not about winning the best seat. It's about serving the child in your midst. He says, if you don't correct this, your very soul is at stake. And finally, what's at stake is your calling in the kingdom. Verses 49 to 50, it says, um, For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. It's kind of a difficult one to uh, digest a little bit, but what's happening here is a shift in the, in, the, uh, in the example. So I know we just talked about fire in the sense of eternal uh, separation from God, right? That's what the previous few verses were. This is a shift to say, uh, to talk about persecution, okay? Everyone who is following the Lord will be salted with fire. The reference is actually back to sacrifice in the Old Testament, when burnt offerings would be salted as, as they were sacrificed, and they'd be completely burnt out. It's about purification of who you are, okay? God has called each of us to go and do something for his kingdom. And remember the context of the book of Mark. Mark is writing to the persecuted church in Rome. Okay? They are under persecution of the emperor Nero. Their friends are being killed for their faith in Jesus. And so he's saying to them, remember, disciples, the ones who are watching you, uh, the, what's at stake is the ones who are watching you, what's at stake is your own soul, and what's at stake is your calling in the kingdom. And yes, you will be salted with fire. 
because just as I was taken to the cross and persecuted, so will you also be persecuted in my name. He says the salt is good, but if it has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? If you forget the foundation of this faith, that, you're, that the Son of God came from heaven and died on your behalf, if you forget that salt, then you've missed the whole thing, and you're stuck in your own self-worth and pride. So we go with these few things. First this, um, we are followers of a king who bowed to serve. We're followers of a king who bowed to serve. If we truly serve Jesus, then we will act like Jesus. Jesus came from his throne in heaven, humbled himself as a man, and died on a cross for the least of these. For those who were his enemies, he died. And so far be it from us to make the kingdom anything other than dying for the least of these. We follow a king who bowed to serve. If we truly follow him, we will do the same. You see this all throughout Paul's writings uh, as he addresses the churches, 1 Corinthians 4.11. This is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mystery of God. Galatians 1.10 for I am now seeking, uh, am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Am I trying to please man? If I were trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ to all the saints in Christ Jesus. God's call to us as followers of Jesus is to serve in the same way he served, serve the least of these. Put them in our midst and receive them. We follow a king who bowed to serve. Second, um, following Jesus is bigger than any name that could be attached to it. Over the course of 2,000 years of church history, many, many names and even nations have tied their name to the name of Christ. And very quickly, in tying their name to the name of Christ, they have elevated their name above the name of Christ and called it Christian. Over and over and over and over again in human constructs, we have put the name of Christ on something and then damaged it by making it human. Following Jesus is bigger than any name that could be attached to it. It's not about Restoration Church. That's just a nice name, okay? God gave me that name because whatever, I just felt like that was the name God wanted to give us, that we'd be restored to God the Father. It's a beautiful thing. But listen, if I get all prideful about the name of Restoration Church, what am I doing? It's about the name of Jesus. If I get all prideful about some denomination that I'm a part of and say, this is the right way to follow Jesus right here. We go to this committee meeting and that one, and we submit that committee meeting's decision over to this. Like, stop trusting in your own devices and just follow Jesus. 
Jesus is bigger than any name we could attach to it. And that's what the disciples were doing. They were saying, look, that guy over there, he's casting out demons in your name. He's kind of like stealing our stuff. And Jesus is going, no, he's my child. And he's doing the work of the kingdom. So let him be. We have to open our minds. This is why we pray for another church every Sunday, right? We have to open our minds and our hearts to say that God is doing something bigger than us. And we ought to be interceding for the other churches in our area and saying, go get them. Please, your gifts are different than mine. Serve the kingdom and may his name be glorified. He's bigger than any name we could attach to him. And finally, You've heard me say it a ton. Jesus is after our hearts. We've talked about it this morning already. Our hearts are broken. They're so broken that we could hear Jesus say, I'm going to the cross to die for you. And be like, nah, I'm the greatest. <laughs> what? How do we do that? But you and I, we do that. God's like, hey, I need you to walk in this way. And you're like, yeah, 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 but uh, we should work it out this way. <laughs> like, I told you to go that way, <laughs> you know? He's after our hearts, that we would cling to him in every trial that we face. For the sake of those watching us, for the sake of our own souls, for the sake of the calling that God has put on each of us. This kingdom of God that Jesus has invited you into is way bigger than you could ever have imagined. And it's also way more intimate and small than you could ever dream. We would say, even the least of these, come. Come, we will serve you as Jesus served me. Let's pray. Lord, we're so thankful for what Christ has done for us. We, um, we will spend eternity glorifying you for the depth of each miracle you've done for us, God giving you honor and praise that is due only to you. And so, God, we ask that um, you would be forming our hearts. We're so thankful that you were merciful and gracious and patient with your disciples as they followed you for three years, not understanding a thing. Not even after you raised, you're walking with disciples and they don't know it's you in their midst. God, we are just like them. And so, God, have mercy on us, too. Help us to keep our eyes fixed on you. Help us to cling to you in every trial. When we're salted with fire, God, help the purity of the gospel rise forward within us. God, search our hearts. See if there be any unclean way in us. And lead us in your way everlasting. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.